A reading from 1 Corinthians. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of you, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The word of the Lord. When I was a child, I had a stuffed animal named Sheffy. And Sheffy was a strange character to be such a protagonist of my developing years. Um, first of all, he was a bear in a chef's uniform. I don't know why I liked that so much, but I did. Um, second of all, the way that I got Sheffy was by clipping the barcodes off of TV dinner boxes. And what kid does that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then, of course, it was a uh, bear chef named Sheffy, not exactly the most inspired character naming in the history of creative writing, especially from someone who went on to get a degree in creative writing. Um, if you had told me that it was strange that I should be so attached to a TV dinner mascot bear chef that was falling apart at the seams, I would have looked at you and said, why? You see... Sheffy wasn't an obviously lovable bear, but I chose him, and I had bought him with my diligent clipping of TV dinner boxes, and that was enough. The church is full of Sheffies like you and me, full of the misfits and the falling apart and the broken and the hurting and the out of place and the just plain weird. But... But God chose us, and God bought us with the blood of Jesus, and that is enough. 
We're in a series called First Corinthians, A Broken Kind of Beautiful, where we're looking at the church and the paradox of the church. It's beautiful because God has called all sorts of people together to represent him to the world, but it's broken because we are full of the misfits and the out of place and the just plain weird. And First Corinthians was written to help us navigate this crazy, upside down, paradoxical thing that we call the church. In our passage this morning, Paul talks about the idea of wisdom and how wisdom intersects with the church and how it helps us to live out um, the church in this world. So Paul's main idea here is that the, the wisdom of God inverts the wisdom of the world. Now, to invert something means to turn it into its opposite. And so before God, the wisdom of this, the world is actually turned into its opposite. It becomes foolishness in front of God. Paul really emphasizes this point through some wordplay and some literary devices. First, we've got some rhetorical questions in verse 20. He says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the implied answer is that, yes, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, that before him, all of the wise people and all of the scholars and all of the lawyers don't amount to much. Second thing we see in the passage are all of these word pairs. So we have wisdom versus foolishness or strength versus weakness or high birth versus low birth or the things that are versus the things that are not. And in every single instance, God always identifies with the less desirable item in the pair. We also have words that keep changing meaning throughout the passage. Verse 25 is an example of this. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And so wisdom is becoming foolishness, and foolishness is becoming wisdom, and strength is becoming weakness. And with God, all of these words are getting flipped on their head. What is this pointing us to? He's pointing us to the idea of perspective. Whether you see something as wisdom or foolishness, strength or wisdom, all depends on your perspective. If you're standing where the world stands, then you're going to see it one way. And if you're standing where God is standing, then you're going to see it another way. On the screen behind us is one of the works of Japanese artist Shigeo Fukuda um, called Underground Piano. Now, it looks like a pile of piano parts just thrown together uh, in no apparent order, but... If you zoom out and you see that pile of parts reflected in the mirror next to you, you see the piano. Yeah, it's cool, right? Um, So that's how God's wisdom works. It looks like a complete random pile of parts when you're just looking at it. But if you're able to stand back, if you're able to get a little bit of perspective, if you're able to reflect on it, see what I reflect, get it? Um then we can see the truth and the beauty in God's wisdom. The world tells us that wisdom is having a high-paying job or an Ivy League degree or it's tolerance of everyone's beliefs and lifestyles or or wisdom is the freedom to do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. But all of the world's supposed wisdom has turned us into one of the least family-oriented, most addicted, most bitter, most entitled, loneliest civilizations in history. God's wisdom is the only thing that can heal us. But we have to be able to step back, see all of the random parts that makes up God's wisdom with the proper perspective, 
and to allow God to come in and speak into this world. So we see that God's wisdom is coming in to invert the wisdom of this world. But this is not some abstract concept. It's not just what we know. There are concrete ways in which God's wisdom comes and intersects with our reality. Paul's going to talk about three of those concrete ways uh, in this passage. The first and the most foundational um, is going to really set the foundation for everything else that is to come. And so first and foremost, God's wisdom inverts the wisdom of this world through the power of the cross. Paul mentions the cross three times in the passage. The first is verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again in verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Then again in the first verses of chapter 2. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so for Paul, wisdom is not just some abstract concept. It is not about what we know. Wisdom was exemplified in an actual moment in history when God in the flesh came and suffered on an actual cross for us. And any attempt to know wisdom in this world must first deal with the cross. The world does not see the cross as wisdom. The world admires the wealthy or the powerful or the charismatic or the pretty people. And Jesus didn't fit that mold. He did a lot of walking, a lot of talking, a little bit of sailing here and there. He was homeless, not all that good looking, and then he died. Why would we follow that kind of God? But you know what? The church isn't all that comfortable with a crucified God either. We put a cross on our wall, but then we accumulate more and more stuff for ourselves while the world goes hungry. We let our ambition and our need for control get in the way of real relationships. We split our churches because we would rather be right than unified. We want more control, more comfort, more affirmation, more money, more power, and we have no concept of a God who says, see that cross I carried for you? Now drop everything else, pick up your own cross, and follow me. You see, the way of a crucified God is foolishness. And we would be fools to follow it. Unless. Unless God is powerful enough to invert the wisdom of this world and turn what seems foolish into wisdom. So what happened on the cross? According to Christopher Wright, here is why the cross matters. Only in the cross... Is there forgiveness, justification, and cleansing for guilty sinners? Only in the cross stands the defeat of evil powers. Only in the cross is there release from the fear of death. Only in the cross are even the most intractable of enemies reconciled. Only in the cross will we witness the healing of all creation. The cross starts with death, but it does not end there. This world promises us life, but it always ends in death. The cross to this world seems like shame, disgrace, suffering, and defeat. But in God's eyes, the cross is, according to verse 30, the means of our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God's wisdom 
inverts the wisdom of the world first and foremost through the power of the cross. So that is the start of God's plan to redeem this world through Jesus. What is the continuation of that plan? The continuation of that plan is for God to call out for himself a people from this world who will represent the new reality of his inbreaking kingdom to that world. That people, called the church, is going to reflect the same upside-down wisdom as the cross that saved the church. And so the second way in which God's wisdom inverts the wisdom of this world is through the calling of the church. So what do we know about the Corinthian church? We get a lot in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. By and large, the Corinthian church was an unremarkable group of people. Now, did God try to call all of the doctors and the lawyers and the professors and the viral YouTube sensations of Corinth, but they all said no. And so he looked around and saw who was left and said, all right, I guess you'll do. No. This, the calling of the Corinthian church exemplifies the way God loves to work in the world. And so starting in verse 27, Paul's going to expand this out to God's plan for the world. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. What's going on here? I want to make an illustration and come back to this. University of Michigan professor Dehi Kwok published a study which concluded that when filling out your March Madness brackets, you're better off just flipping a coin. After talking to enough people whose bracket lost to somebody who had never watched a day of basketball in their lives, he finally um, decided to do some research on it and found that brackets that were randomly chosen outperformed the brackets of most fans. His conclusion? Sometimes too much knowledge can be a liability. God could have chosen all of the pretty and the wealthy and the powerful and the charismatic people But sometimes all of those stellar qualities can be a liability. They lead to pride. They lead to other baggage that actually gets in the way of what it is that God wants to do. And so Paul comes in and he reminds the Corinthian church of what they were when they were called because they have forgotten who they are and they have forgotten that God likes them that way. My wife and I are preparing to serve as missionaries in Cambodia. And as we have been doing that, we've been reading and researching different stories from that country, from our future home. And I want to tell you about one of the stories that we came across as we've been doing that. I want to tell you the story about Duke. Uh, He was a middle-aged math teacher living in northern Cambodia when he met Pastor Christopher, who led him to Christ. Um, After that, Duke became an evangelist and a lay pastor in the area, led many people to Christ and helped many people to grow in their own faith. In 1999, after uh, a few years uh, of Duke himself growing in the knowledge of God's grace, he decided that it was time to come clean with his darkest secret. About 20 years earlier, Duke had served in the Khmer Rouge regime as the head of the Tool Slang prison. He supervised the interrogation torture, and execution of approximately 20,000 people. He turned himself in, 
is now serving a life sentence where he is sharing with his fellow inmates how Jesus can forgive their dark pasts as well. When Christopher, who led him to Christ, heard about this, a um, little backstory to Christopher, he lost his parents, his brother, and his sister during the Khmer Rouge regime. When he heard about this, he said to Duke, I love you and I forgive you and I accept you as my brother in Christ. This is a powerful story that has one point, and that is that there is a place for everybody in the church. Waterstone, think of what you were when you were called. Since I've been here, I've met people who've been depressed, divorced, discouraged. I've met people who've been addicted, adulterers, angry. I've met people who've had eating disorders, who've done self-harm, who've lost their jobs, who filed for bankruptcy. I've even met people here who are just plain ordinary. And yet, here you are. And when I look out at you, and I see the people that God has called into this church, I think to myself, really? Them? What is it about you that makes you an unlikely part of God's plan to redeem the world? If there's nothing unlikely about you, then I invite you to consider the uncomfortable possibility that there is something you are holding on to that God's wisdom wants to nullify. God chose the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Which category are you in? Now, there are some of you here who can't believe that God would possibly let you into a place like this. If that's the case, you are exactly where you should be. God loves to call the misfits, the marginalized, the broken, the hurting, and the just plain weird into his church. So we see that God inverts the wisdom of this world through the power of the cross, through the calling of the church, even misfit problematic churches like the one in Corinth and the one at 470 in Bowles right across from Tipsy's. And if we stop trying to pretend that we are better than we are and we embrace who God has called us to be, then we get to be examples of God's inverted wisdom to the world. The third way that God's wisdom inverts the wisdom of the world is through the preaching of the gospel. A little bit of cultural background. One of the highest cultural values in Corinth at that time was to be a skilled public speaker. There were a particular set of skills that one learned, um, and they would go out, but the point was never to shed light on any issue. The point was always to bring attention to the speaker. In my opinion, it's kind of like presidential debates. The point of those is not to shed light on issues. The point is to win, and the pundits decide who wins by saying who was the most poised and who had the catchiest one-liners. Um, and so Paul looks at that and he, he asks this question. Does it make sense that um, the church would be saved through this dirty, shameful cross and that the church would be called from the margins of society and yet I am going to go about preaching the gospel in the same way as these selfish and fake Greek orators of the day? Paul's answer to that comes in chapter 2. We'll read that together. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. 
For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So when Paul refers to eloquence, what he's referring to is uh, the skill that these Greek public speakers had. And he wants to distance himself from them because he doesn't want anyone to think that he preaches Jesus so that he will look good. He wants to make Jesus look good, and so he strips down the presentation of the gospel to the bare basics and preaches nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is a tricky one for us to apply to ourselves here today because we are a culture that really desires for there to be flash in what we do. Um, and so we do need to preach the gospel in ways that make sense with where people are coming from, but we do not need to dress Jesus up. And if we feel that we do need to dress Jesus up, it may be because we are afraid of how we will look if we embrace Jesus as he truly is, even though Jesus embraced us as we truly are. So what do we do? Well, I don't think that we need smoke machines or the latest gimmicks or the latest technology or the latest strategies in order to live out our Christian life. I think we need Jesus Christ and him crucified. I say that, but I have really been wrestling with that this week. I, I feel almost as if Paul has given me a bit of a catch-22. On the one hand, I really want to preach this passage well. On the other hand, Paul seems to be saying that if I do it too well, I detract from the gospel. What it's really forced me to do is take a hard, uncomfortable look at my motivations. Am I preaching for my glory or for God's glory? I wish I had a better answer for you this morning, but turns out I am a bundle of mixed motives. Um, here's what I have tried to do. I've tried to cut back on my preparation, even though I'm a perfectionist, and that kills me so that I can pray for my heart and for your hearts this morning. And what I really hope is that when you leave here, you say absolutely nothing about me. And that the only thing you can talk about when you leave here is how good of a God we serve. So it, it is difficult for me to apply it in this context. Um, but you know somewhere where this rings really true for me? And that's in the mission field. You know, I'm preparing to move to Cambodia because I see needs, particularly in the area of theological education, that I think I can help meet. The irony of that is that I have the language skills of a toddler. Or I think back to the two years that I lived in Italy, where I was interacting with highly intelligent college students trying to explain to them the gospel of Jesus, and then I would go home at night and I would watch the Italian version of Sesame Street with wide eyes saying, oh, that's how the letter C works. I find it fascinating, fascinating that the majority of the time when the gospel takes root in a new culture, it was first introduced there by missionaries who did not speak the language well. It's almost as if language barriers are God's gift to us to help us really come to terms with this truth in 1 Corinthians 2, that the simplified, bare-bones gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified is enough. And you know what? The global church is growing like never before. The evidence seems to suggest that that simple gospel is in fact enough. So what would it look like 
if we pretended as if we were missionaries who did not have the language skills to tell each other anything else but the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified? What if when we are discussing complex, heated, controversial issues that we do not agree on, if we stop trying to convince each other that we are right and spent more time trying to talk about Jesus Christ, and we will get the rest of it figured out as we go? Or what if when we are trying to share Christ with our neighbors who do not yet know him, we stop trying to say the right thing at the right time and have all of the best strategies and instead just season our language with Jesus? Jesus and the gospel of him crucified is enough. So we see that God's wisdom inverts the wisdom of the world through the power of the cross, the calling of the church, and the preaching of the gospel. One question remains. Why? Why does God choose to work this way? Why does he not do this in a more straightforward way? We have a couple of so that statements in this passage that explain God's reasoning. The first comes in verse 29. Paul's talking again about the calling of the church from the margins of society. And he explains in verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. Or in verses four through five of chapter two. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. All of this points us to God's glory. If God calls the most unlikely people from society into the church, and if, against all odds, that church goes on to grow in maturity and to reach out into the world beyond it, then God will get more glory than he would otherwise. And that is God's ultimate goal in all of this, is to glorify himself. My wife and I love to drive to the top of Mount Evans. Uh, Inevitably, we will pass a few suckers, I mean hikers and bikers along the way, who take what I affectionately call the slow way up. Now, we'll both get to the top eventually, but the bikers had more odds stacked against them, and so when they get to the top, they get more glory than I do. God stacks the odds against himself so that when he inevitably emerges victorious in the end, he gets more glory than we would. He doesn't work the way that we would work so that he can get more glory than we do when he works. How does this apply to what we've been talking about? God brings about the salvation of the world through a dirty, shameful cross, and in doing so, gets more glory. God calls the church from the marginalized, from the poor, from the outcast, from the broken, from the hurting of society, and in doing so, he gets more glory. God gives us a message to preach that is not about us, but is about Jesus Christ and him crucified, and in doing so, he gets more glory. I'm going to be pointed here for just a moment. God's wisdom is not usually going to look like the wisdom of middle-class suburban America. And if all of our middle-class suburban American friends don't think a thing of the kind of wisdom that we're living out, then we should rethink that. Let me put it another way. What do you think God's will is for your life right now? If your answer to that question does not surprise you or scare you, then you probably aren't listening very well. God's wisdom is not the same as the wisdom of this world. What do we do? Spend some time in prayer. Reflect on the cross. 
Allow God to call you to do something that may fail so that you are forced to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Get involved in one of our ministries that serves the poor and the marginalized among us so that you can really get a feel for the kinds of people that God loves to call into his church. And you can practice the humility that Jesus displayed on the cross. If you don't know where to start, then feel free to shoot me an email. I'm happy to talk to you about some of the ministries that we partner with. Or this coming Saturday, you can get involved in our Nine Health Fair, in which hundreds of people from our community are going to be flooding this building. And you have an opportunity to serve and to pray for our community and the kinds of people that God is wanting to call into this church. Half of you today are trying to make yourself look too good. Stop it. You're boasting in the wrong things. Humbly follow the example of Jesus on the cross. The other half of you think that you are too worthless for God to ever use you for his plan. Stop it. Boast in God. You are enough. God loves you not because of who he thinks you should be, but because of who you already are. Embrace who you were when you were called into the church and humbly follow the example of Jesus on the cross. I want to leave you with one final example of God's inverted wisdom in the world. Um, I want to tell you the story of my family. Uh, My parents are actually visiting here with us this morning, uh, which means I can't make up stuff about them. (laughs) So I asked them to write in their own words why it was so unlikely that God would have called us into his plan. My dad says this, My life was marked by addiction to alcohol and related offshoots, a self-centeredness which too often placed work, drinking buddies, hobbies, and other self-serving interests above my family and certainly above God. If it was fun or pleasing, I would rarely hesitate. Throughout my life, while never disavowing God, I simply ignored, neglected, and disrespected him. My mom writes this. I was one of those decent enough people who called themselves a Christian with no concept of what it actually meant, and certainly no lifestyle to back up my alleged Christianity. In 1994, I was a workaholic in a high-pressure job who neglected my family. My marriage was over and divorce was imminent. I was depressed and devastated that my life had gotten so out of control and disgusted with myself at my failures. And me. I lived with depression for 10 years. Um, I was scared of where my life was going, where our family was going. I was uh, too insecure and scared to reach out for help, and I was too lonely to be okay with that. I felt stuck, and I felt hopeless. So what happened? I think my mom beautifully writes it this way. As is so often the case, these terrible circumstances sent us running to God with heart in hand and nothing to offer but a broken life needing fixing. God waited until we were at our messiest, until we seemed that we were too far outside of what he could do for us, and he came into that in that moment, and he captivated our hearts. He didn't make all the pain go away, but he redeemed all of the pain. My parents have a strong marriage and a vibrant ministry, and I surrendered to a call to the ministry, And I get to stand before you this morning to proclaim in word and in example that Jesus is enough. 
And if you have heard even one tiny thing of value this morning, it is because God saw fit to call the weak, the foolish, and the thing that was not in order to proclaim his plan to this world. Now it's your turn. Let your life invert the wisdom of this world by embracing the power of the cross, by embracing your calling into the church, and by embracing the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're going to worship together for a few moments. We're going to sing about Jesus, the man of sorrows. We're going to reflect on his life. We're going to reflect on the cross, that instrument of death turned into the instrument of our salvation. Sin, death, and shame have no more power over us. We have been set free. So let us sing as if that is true. Let us live as if that is true.